And open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Revelation 2, 12. We're in a series, Strength for Today, Hope for Tomorrow. In particular, we're looking at the letters to the seven churches, which we've said are representative of the churches in every age um, around the world. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, and this is the Word of God. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Enjoy me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that we do have your word this morning, that it is true and that it is certain. So, Father, as we come to this particular letter, we need your Spirit's help to grasp what you're saying, Father. Uh, Your Spirit to help us hear what you say to the seven churches, particularly the church in Pergamum. Uh, Father, help us to understand Uh, shape how we think, the convictions we hold, the way we live, the words we speak, we ask, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sitting high atop a thousand foot hill, 15 miles inland, and some 65 miles north of Smyrna, uh, the beautiful city of Pergamon uh, is visible from the Aegean Sea, which is the part of the Mediterranean up between Greece and Turkey. And the placement of the buildings around the crescent of the hill give the appearance of a crown uh, up in the sky. And uh, it's a city that Pliny the Elder, who'd served in Spain and Germany and Italy, uh, made the observation uh, that it's the most significant city in Asia. And a few years later, Jesus makes his own comment about the city. It's a stunning one. He says, this is the throne of Satan. And Pergamon Presbyterian Church dwells in its shadow. So why does Jesus say that? And what does it mean for us? Let's go to the text and see. So right in the Pergamon Presbyterian Church, Jesus, taking the characteristic from the first chapter, as he always does, refers to himself this way. To the angel of the church in Pergamon write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Literally, if we took that, it would be this, uh, the one who has a sword, the two-edged sword, the sharp one, where it packs more power than the, uh, than the, more, uh, uh, the, the translation they give us. And what is that sword? That sword's the Word of God, the standard by which Jesus brings salvation to us, but also judgment in this world. Remember Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts 
and intense intentions of the heart. It's a two-edged sword, has a twofold purpose. First, the, the sword of God's Word brings life to believers in Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Uh, the promises of God, the message of the gospel, frees those who are believers in Jesus from our sin. But likewise, the, the sword of God's Word brings judgment on those who do not believe. Like the cross itself, which gives life to believers and brings judgment to unbelievers, God's Word brings both eternal life and eternal death. Now, the proconsul or governor in some cities across the Roman Empire had the authority and the power to uh, give uh, execution, to give life or death to the people brought before them. Uh, as the governmental center of Asia, the governor of Pergamum had that power. And so Jesus is really alluding to that when he claims himself that power, both in the final judgment, but also in the current situation in Pergamum. And you see, in bringing judgment now there, causes us to anticipate the judgment He will bring one day in its fullness uh, that we anticipate. Revelation 19, uh, 15 tells us about Jesus' current role over the nations and His rule over them from heaven, His throne there, but also the consummation of history uh, at the final judgment. We read this, From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God, the Almighty. Let me point out that what Revelation 19.15 tells us uh, is what the people of Jerusalem were in fact anticipating uh, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of that donkey on Palm Sunday. They wanted Him to establish His kingdom. Uh, they wanted it to be earthy, earthly and, and a geographical kingdom. What they didn't realize was that Jesus' kingship was not that, but it was a spiritual kingship. Uh, and he was coming to give his people, who all believe in him, the gift of eternal life, to secure people eternally. Now to be sure, he rules the nations of the earth to accomplish his purposes. So let's address the, the elephant in the room that we get asked about right now. So what about you know, Vladimir Putin and his war in Ukraine? I mean, his depraved mind is certainly a match for that of uh, the premier of China, Xi, and his genocide against the Uyghur people there. Uh, hearts ache for the Ukrainian people, for the Uyghur people, for others around the world who live in, under despots and terrorists. Uh, the barbaric acts of 21st century so-called enlightened minds, uh, well, they mimic the Middle Age clashes and the all back in history all the way to Lamech in the book of Genesis. While people cry out, they want Putin held accountable, we do too, we do so knowing that he will be held accountable. His day is coming. Remember what Polycarp said last week? The fires that he faced because of his faith uh, were nothing like the eternal fires that the Roman proconsul that sentenced him to die at the stake were going to face. And friends, I would suggest as cruel as Putin has been, we've got to pray that somebody, some way, causes them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the meantime, we continue to do all we can to, to help our Ukrainian brothers and sisters in Christ. 
to help the other Ukrainian people as well. And we pray for the war to end. But we do so without wavering in our faith and our confidence that Jesus is the king and he's carrying out his purposes in this world. Now, the city of Pergamon still exists today. It's the Turkish, Turkish city of Bergamon. And while Jesus had God's word as the sword in his mouth, Pergamum had a, a library with 200,000 books in it. Now keep in mind, those would all be handwritten. And it was the second largest library in the world in the first century. Of course, the, the largest was in Alexandria, Egypt. And so the people of Pergamum had the bright idea to, to hire the librarian away from the library in Egypt and bring him up to Pergamum. Well, the Egyptians didn't much care for that. And they not only stopped the librarian from going, but they stopped the export of papyrus uh, used to make the books to Pergamon, because uh, it all came from Egypt. Uh, it was sort of their own form of economic sanctions to maintain their superior literary standing in the Great Library War. So don't get involved in those things, folks. Um, uh, so then the people of Pergamon took parchment and further developed how practical use, which was made out of animal skins. While this uh, library and the arts did make Pergamum a center of culture and learning. Uh, it was a center of the worship of the many Greco-Roman gods as well. The most dominant uh, feature there was the altar of the god Zeus. And indeed it looked like a massive throne. And from that altar they offered sacrifices 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Always smoke rising from that from that altar to the one they called Zeus Soter, uh, which means God their Savior, Zeus the Savior. Uh, there was also a temple there to Asipios. He's the God of healing. Uh, we still see a symbol today as that pole with, with the snake wrapped around it, uh, still used as a, a medical symbol today. Uh, one of his daughters was Hagia. She's the goddess of health and uh, cleanliness and sanitation. Uh, Asipius was also called a savior, of course a counterfeit Jesus. Now in his temple they had these non-poisonous stakes roaming around. And if you needed healing, here's what you did. You laid down on the floor of the temple, or you slept there at night, in hopes that a snake would crawl over you. And if that snake crawled across you, guess what? You were supposedly healed. I am glad we've moved past that. But anyway... Um, you know, people will really believe anything. It's amazing. Uh, and, uh, and like in Smyrna, there was emperor worship. In fact, the first temple to an emperor was built here in Pergamon, built for Caesar Augustus. Later, two more temples were built to honor other Roman emperors. And because of this extreme devotion to emperor worship, Christians were in danger, not just on the one day a year they were expected to offer a sacrifice, but, but every day of the year. And so when you take all this in Zeus's throne, Jesus said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So let that sink in. I know where you dwell. And it's in the shadow of Satan's throne. The word throne is used 42 times in uh, the book of Revelation, 40 times God's throne, two times here in uh, one other place, it refers to Satan's throne. You can see the other one over in 1610 uh, if you want to. Uh, and so immediately you know that that means a clash. Because the church in Pergamon is the church of the enthroned king of heaven, the king of the universe, 
Jesus himself. And even as Jesus marched triumphantly into Jerusalem, the church that carries out his ongoing ministry to the ends of the earth has marched into the city of Pergamum. And Jesus has praise for the church there. Note verse 13. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Again, the repeated emphasis, this is where Satan dwells. But Jesus declares that some of them hold fast to Jesus' name, to his name. Now, friends, we've got to face it. That would not be an easy task in such an environment. Uh, again, business connections, they're all centered around the temple. Uh, the um, uh, membership in trade guilds centered around that temple, pagan temple worship. Uh, social life centered around those temples. Uh, enticing immorality from those temples uh, dominated the city. That's the city's culture. The church in Pergamum then faced incredible pressure to compromise. Uh, to not compromise was to face economic and social uh, loss and death. So how do you hold fast to Jesus' name? What's that mean in such a context? Uh, for example, they held fast to their identity in Christ and all that that name reveals to us about him. In a world that tries to get us to find our identity in so many other things, uh, so many other places, as followers of Jesus, we're to find our identity in Christ. Uh, they did it even though it could mean death. In fact, we find the death here of someone named Antipas, whom we're told was martyred for his faith. Now, we don't know anything about him. Tradition suggests he might have been the pastor there, but we're not really sure. The one thing we do know is that Jesus calls him my faithful witness. And really no greater or higher words could be said of someone who faced death, who lived in the shadow of Satan's throne. Friends, Satan thrives and lives in spiritual darkness. And Antipas' reward for being a faithful witness was what? Well, death. He was killed for his faithful witness. Death in this life but eternal life in the age to come. But some in the church were not dealing too well with this challenge. Hence, we have a rebuke from Jesus. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. All right. Uh, remember Balaam? Near the end of Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, uh, they arrive at the borders of Moab and Midian. And uh, King Mo, uh, Balak of Moab fears the Israelites will attack and destroy Moab, despite Israel's assurance that they won't. They just want to pass through. So Balak sends for this pagan prophet named Balaam to come and to curse Israel. Uh, and in the first entreaties, Balaam says, no, because God told me not to go. Then Balak sends another group of leaders to bring Balaam. And God told him they could go, but only could say the words that God put in his mouth. Of course, Balaam wanted the money that was being offered, so he got on his donkey and off he goes. He gets to this narrow mountain pass. 
Um, and uh, unbeknownst to, to Balaam, three times the angel of the Lord stands in the pathway, blocking it with a sword in his hand to kill Balaam. And each time the donkey sees that and veers off to the side. And each time Balaam beats the donkey. Uh, and the donkey finally lies down and he beats him again. And uh, uh, because, well, the donkey saw that. Balaam didn't. The third time, much to Balaam's surprise, the donkey speaks up. And, um, and asks Balaam, why do you keep beating me? You know, uh, I'm trying to save your life. As an aside, remember, this is an incredibly encouraging passage for preachers, all right? Because if God can speak to a donkey, I'll let you make the connection, okay? All right? Uh, at any rate, God opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel of the Lord. And the angel warns him again, speak only what I tell you. And to make a long story short, Balaam does, and three times he blesses the people of Israel uh, in obedience to God. Much to the chagrin of King Balak. Uh, but then Balaam has another idea. And he encourages Balak to use women to seduce Israelites by inviting them to an idolatrous feast and, uh, and to uh, partake in sexual immorality. So Balaam could not curse them, but he could corrupt them and entice them back to the lewd lifestyle they practiced in Egypt. And they were drawn by the food. Keep in mind, they've been eating manna for 40 years. And they see this food offered to idols, and it looks good. Then they're enticed by the sexual morality of the pagan worship. And the ploy works. Had it not been for the zeal of Phinehas, the son of Aaron, uh, that plague that came to Israel's camp might have brought destruction to the whole of the nation. Indeed, as a result of the sin, 24,000 Israelites died. Now, when it comes to the Nicolaitans' teaching, we don't know a lot about it. But given the context, it seems that their teaching is, it leads to the same immorality. Uh, and scholars do agree they further seduced the Christians with their teaching that since God created sexual activity um, and that Christians could maintain their identity as Christians no matter what, uh, in the name of Christian liberty, they could attend these pagan orgies and participate in acts of immorality. In other words, Christians were free to come into the, buy into the sexual morality of the culture around them. Of course, the core issue there is a complete misunderstanding of the connection we have between grace and holiness. Now, one historian suggests that Perhaps the idea of sexual purity was, was a new virtue coming from the Christian community there in Pergamon. Certainly in the 4th century, Demosthenes, a Greek, had this depraved view. We have harlots for pleasure, concubines for daily cohabitation, and wives for the purpose of having legitimate children as well as managing our affairs. And Cicero in the 1st century, for the one who thinks that men should be forbidden the love of women... He's extremely severe. I'm not able to deny the principle that is a virtue, but he's at odds not only with the license of what our own age allows, but also with the customs of our ancestors. When indeed was this not done? When did anyone ever find fault with it? When was such permission denied? When was it that that which is not lawful, now lawful, was not lawful? 
Today's sexual confusion and immorality is erecting barriers for those who will not conform to the sexual depravity and confusion that's now being celebrated and commanded in our culture. An advice column in in Slate.com this week addressed a husband. The wife wrote in complaining that her husband would not go along happily with the concept of an open marriage. Imagine that. Um, And so how did the advice columnist answer that? Well, blasted the husband, not the wife. What New Jersey wants to teach kindergartners and first graders and second graders is child abuse. Nothing less. Friends, there's a spiritual battle raging our nation for our children. And corporate America and big business has joined in the war against truth and morality. They're modern-day Balaamites and Nicolaitans. And certainly, for us, we've got to guard our hearts. We have the need to be compassionate and kind and loving towards the confused and the rebellious. Pointing them away from a worldly obsession with self and towards the identity that we find in our Creator, our Savior, our Redeemer, our King, Jesus But as we do, we must stand firm on what the Bible teaches. And we've got to call sin, sin. No matter what depravity the world wants us to celebrate, King Jesus demands nothing less. And within the church, Jesus calls any who would compromise with the world in these sexual matters in any way, uh, which are so seductive to His solution. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus minces no words in the reaction he demands from those who compromise with sexual morality and confusion of the world. Repent. He calls sin, sin. He says his people need a complete change of heart, a change in direction. That's what true repentance is. It's a change in attitude, uh, a thought concerning sin and concerning what righteousness is. Jesus' command is stop sinning and begin to live this way. According to his word, acknowledging that Jesus is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And if they'll not repent, Jesus says he will come and deal with them. And again, he's not talking there about the second coming. He's talking about coming to the local church in judgment. John MacArthur writes, The goal of the church is not to provide an environment where unbelievers can just feel comfortable. It's to be a place where they can hear the truth and be convicted of their sins so they can be saved. Gently, lovingly, graciously, yet firmly, Unbelievers need to be confronted with the reality of their sin and God's gracious provision through Jesus Christ. See, this is why we've got to take a stand and not compromise with the world, not tolerate sin, but proclaim God's truth loudly and lovingly in place of the moral teaching that's destroying the lives of so many. And yes, we get angry at those who teach this rebellion. But our heart's desire has got to be to share the gospel with them and to free them from their slavery to Satan's seductive ploys. 
It's ironic and perhaps eye-opening that a sword is exactly what Balaam faced in that narrow mountain pass in the hand of the angel of the Lord. And also that Balaam in Numbers 31.8 dies by the sword. And when repentance happens, Jesus makes an incredible promise. He was near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it. The stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We need to conquer this sin. It's got to be done individually, collectively as a church. To make sure that this sexual morality is not tolerated among us. Because friends, it is eternally destructive. And when we do, Jesus promises us that we're going to feed, uh, he's going to feed us with this hidden manna. Now, what's, what's the hidden manna? Some suggest that in the sense it's hidden in the, in the fact that you know, manna was put into the, the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, Second Maccabees uh, talks about a legend of Jeremiah hiding the Ark of the Covenant uh, with the manna in it in a cave on Mount Moriah. Uh, and then the, the Jewish thinking is the age of Messiah, it will come out and they'll eat of that manna again. After all, what was the manna? It's what God was feeding Israel with when they hungered for the food sacrificed to the idols of the Moabites. The manna Jesus offers is spiritual bread that the world cannot see nor can it comprehend. It's Jesus promising that I'm the bread of life. Jesus says that those who eat of this bread of life will receive nourishment and satisfaction. They'll never hunger. We eat this bread, we will never hunger. Eating the manna gives us enjoyment and satisfaction with Jesus now and in eternity. So what about the white stone? There are a lot of different theories on what this is. Let me just give it, I think, the best one. Uh, is when, when in athletic contests, when they were winners then, uh, they gave you a white stone which got you into this, the victory party. You can get the white stone, didn't win, didn't get to go to the party. All right. Uh, well, our white stone will admit us to the ultimate victory party in heaven itself. Our new name will be written on our pass into eternity itself. A new name that identifies us with Jesus Christ and confirms our identity in Him. So what about us? Today, we dwell where Satan's throne is. We dwell where people deny that God is creator and instead worship the self. Where people pretend there's no such thing as truth or sin and show no knowledge of human sexuality nor that they've ever read Hans Christian Andersen's story, The Emperor's New Clothes. The government pretends male and female is a social construct and not a matter of biology. So how do we combat that? How do we keep from compromising with the world of the things that we've discussed? Well, first recognize that Satan's Balaam plan and Nicolaitan plan are on repeat. They are powerful tools to use against God's people uh, today to entice us to compromise with the world. Uh, Friends, we don't need to be naive in the face of temptation. We don't need to be surprised by the temptation to compromise. The loss of truth of the last half century has been dramatic. And the media, the arts, technology, business, politics, they increasingly operate without any sort of commitment to truth. And Christians are beginning to reflect the anything-goes tolerance of the culture. 
Friends, the remedy is the solid teaching of the Word of God, the double-edged sword coming from the mouth of Jesus. The struggle for truth must not be won by a heart-wrenching story in the place of the clear, timeless teaching of the Word of God. God's Word has never changed. The sins people are tempted with across the centuries have never really changed. The relevance of God's Word stands. So where we have compromised or even thought about compromise, we need to repent. We need to change direction and pursue the truth uh, of the Word of God. And pursue the truth of what God wants to be. Uh, to communicate that truth to the coming generations and the world around us. And when we repent, we're assured by God, we're forgiven. Our slate is clean. Our sins are washed away. And yes, it, it makes us different. It makes us stand out. And it makes the world hate us. We need to teach and show what it means to find our identity in the enthroned Christ, who will ultimately bring judgment, and he will dethrone Satan from his earthly throne. We need King Jesus' rule and reign. Uh, we need the king who came on that donkey into Jerusalem to bring peace to a world that needs to be peace to, to come again. Uh, today we look around the world and, and we see Satan's handiwork. From Putin's atrocities to the celebrations of sexual confusion in our nation and the tragic abuse uh, that results, the cry rings out for justice. Make no mistake, that day of judgment will come. It will come. Revelation 19.15 makes it explicit. So today we need to join our voices to drown out the cries of, of Balaam by joining those who cried out on that first Palm Sunday, Hosanna, meaning come, save us, we pray. May he do it. Indeed, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we dwell where Satan's throne is. We live in the shadow of Satan's throne. And in that darkness, there's a lot of evil going on. So, Father, give us the courage to stand against that evil. Give us the courage not to compromise. But, Father, to stand on the Word of God, Father, on the sword, the living Word of God that comes from the mouth of God comes from Jesus' mouth. Father, where we've sinned, forgive us, we pray, and we're so grateful. How wonderful your grace is that it forgives our sins, Lord. Grace, it's greater than all our sin. So, Father, we've stumbled and fall. We confess it. And, Father, we trust you and thank you that in Christ you'll pick us up and help us move forward. So, Father, somebody here that doesn't yet know the joy of knowing King Jesus, finding their identity in the one who is the Savior and Redeemer, who loved us all the way to the cross, Lord, draw them to his love today. And, Father, give us the strength to stand against the compromises of the world. And, Father, to hold fast to our identity in Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our King, our Redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.